All right. Well, it didn't seem that long ago, 1995, when California had to say, you know, this electric car mandate's not going to work. They had to cancel it because at that time the cars didn't work. So when Gavin, well, didn't weren't available. When Gavin Newsom made an executive order recently, I said, do they have cars yet? And uh, when I asked... In fact, I think it was Tom, producer extraordinaire at WGN Radio, who said, well, Tom Appel will know. He's the publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive. His website, by the way, is blog.consumerguide.com. Tom, welcome to WGN Radio. Well, thanks for having me. So I want to know, you probably remember back in the 90s when that was the deal, a percentage of California, mostly for government usage, that had to be electric, and then suddenly it's like, well, the vehicles don't exist yet. So now, with this order, and granted, it's not fully till 2035, and I guess uh, in heavy-duty vehicles now 2045, you think they can make that mandate? 2035 is aggressive, um, but it sounds more aggressive to Americans than it probably is, because we have been a little bit slower than the rest of the world to move electric. And, and the changing landscape of the global automotive market suggests that America isn't the only market that drives development anymore. So automakers, which are all global at this point, have been making and getting ready to make electric cars for China and for Western Europe and for other markets. And they're probably closer to meeting this mandate than we think. Can we make 2035? Maybe not, but I think we can get close. Interesting. Interesting. So they're at, you know, 2035, we're looking at 15 years. So there's still a question that we would make that. I love it. Now, of course, uh, when I mentioned the electric cars have been around forever, uh, they, they were kind of big there turn the last century, like 1907 and 1939. Yes. Yeah, and Anderson Electric. Uh, what went wrong? I mean, you know, we joke that the uh, the cords weren't long enough, but uh, realistically, <laughs> they, they supposedly went 100 miles. Uh, now, you know, some people say, well, there was no refueling, but hell, in 1919, there weren't many gas stations either. So what went wrong? Yeah, the thing about the early ones, Baker Electric, uh, Detroit Electric, and all those, um, there was a period of time where electric cars outnumbered gasoline cars for a very brief period of time. Uh, What went wrong is that the battery technology wasn't where it needed to be, and that is still the problem today, 120 years later. Um, Cars would go fairly far in the day, 80, 90, 100 miles, but slowly. The top speed of most of those vehicles is about 25 miles an hour. (laughs) But we're at a point now where we're getting to a battery technology that's going to work and achieve cost parity with gasoline engines. So we're at that point now that we thought we might have been at 100 years ago. You know, that's so interesting because obviously batteries in many ways rule our lives and they're, they're in so many things. And of course, they're also so damn parsnickety about just about everything, <laughs> uh, you know, and those that have memory and those that supposedly don't have memory, but darn, they do have memory and all that. Uh, we're, we, we seem to be in the battery dark ages still. While we've got digital technology, we're still looking at batteries in a way that it seems to be a new science to us. Why the heck haven't we gotten batteries down? Um, Because batteries do different things in different places. The the car battery that's under the hood of our cars right now, the 12-volt battery that sometimes we have to jump in the winter, is probably perfected. That delivers all sorts of power right away when we need it to start a car. They last five or six years in brutal conditions. We've got that nailed down. That's good. 
the, the battery technology that holds enough energy for a vehicle to drive 300 miles in any weather condition and to charge quickly and then be reliable, that's the one we're trying to nail down now. And, and that's a little bit more difficult, but we're getting good at it. So when do you predict here, I'm making you a psychic, just what you want, but when Ooh. do you, yeah, right, exactly, <laughs> we'll get you the Miss Cleo hat and the, ball, the uh, crystal ball and all that, but when, uh, when do you think we really won't have a question as to battery technology on this? Um, I think we don't have a question anymore. I think that the lithium-ion battery, that's the state-of-the-art technology right now found in all electric vehicles, um, with some chemical variations in China where they do things just a little bit differently, um, <laughs> It, it's there now, and it's being refined. And, and the number that's floating around for a lot of people is that by 2025, an electric vehicle should cost no more or even slightly less to build than a comparable gasoline-powered vehicle. So we're getting really close. And that, that really is the benchmark, because right now, of course, you could say, well, there's electric vehicles, you could buy a Tesla, and I'm like, not many people could buy a Tesla. But when you're, you know, price-wise, when you're talking about it being on par with, uh, with gasoline, now this becomes a very exciting equation. And that brings back the question of, do we have enough refueling stations? No, that's a great question. Um, I checked a bunch of numbers just this week, and there's about 150,000 gas stations in the United States, and there are about 25,000 charging stations in the United States. And charging stations isn't quite enough information because we don't know if that's level two or level three charging. Uh, the distinction being that level three is much faster, and most vehicles can now accept level three. But the other part about this is if you have a home, your home is also a charging station. So we won't need quite as many charging stations as we do gas stations. That would be true. The other thing, of course, is that we don't know where those 25,000 are. Uh, right. you know, if, you're, if you're driving from point A to point B, and that happens to be Jacksonville to Santa Monica, for instance, you might have some problems in West Texas. Right, and, and, and that is a problem, and they're being, we're seeing that population of, of charging stations go up right now between... In Milwaukee, a route that my wife and I uh, take fairly often, there's plenty of charging along the way. So if we needed to stop, for example, and, and quickly charge up, we could do that. Popular routes are increasingly um, more friendly to electric drivers. But, yeah, in strange parts of Texas and, and, and you know, in, in the Plain States and places like that, it's going, to take long, it's going to take more time to find that we can reliably find charging along the way. So, Willis, you know, it's, it's funny, as you say that, I'm thinking, yeah, these are going to be places where they have plug-ins for winter weather, but not plug-ins for your car. Uh, <laughs> with that in mind, is there any device, any portable device that you could perhaps, uh, you know, charge in your hotel room if you're going across the country? Um, no, the, the beauty of an electric car is if you are desperate, you can plug into a regular wall outlet. It's painfully slow. Yeah. But it is, it is a last-ditch sort of emergency thing. But increasingly, we're going to find that along interstates especially, there will be charging stations. I don't know if people are familiar with the Electrify America movement, for example, but that is the charging station um, initiative that is funded by the Volkswagen diesel penalty money. So $2 billion of Volkswagen money is going to fund charging stations, and those are going in slowly across the country. Now, that's interesting. Are any of them at this point in far-flung locations, to your knowledge? No, I believe they're actually... 
sadly and predictably, they're going where exactly where you would find electric cars, so big cities, green states, things like that, um, because that's where they would be most used at first. So it does expand the availability and the and the. I think the viability of electric vehicles in the places you would most expect to find them. Um, but no, I don't think there's any big move to get them into more rural areas. Right. And I'm looking at their map at Electrify America. I've seen this before. I kind of laugh at these the same way I do where they talk about broadband availability. I'm like, people are dreaming. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting because even, even their far-flung routes, and man, they're everywhere, except they're not in the Dakotas, they're not in Wyoming, not a bit. You know, so it's interesting to see that even in their uh, their hyped up we're everywhere map, they say, well, you know, the Dakotas don't count. So it it obviously will be a, a multi uh, decade process to to say the oh, least. Sure. Uh, but if we're saying twenty twenty five that the cars are going to be as affordable as what somebody would pay for the average gas guzzler, I would think that that would become a game changer. It would. Now, I think that we have to go just a little bit past that. I think that people resist change to some extent. And we're talking about going beyond the early adopters, the people who are buying Teslas, to to more mainstream, regular Americans looking at electric cars versus gas cars. And I think that beyond price parity, you almost need a small price advantage, I think, to draw in some of the more resistant customers. I would agree with that. Now, of course, here we are on 50,000 watt WGN, 720 AM, and you can imagine that I am totally against electric cars because there goes AM on every one of them. (laughs) And, you know, they could do things to properly ground it. But when I asked Tesla, they, they pretty much acted like I was asking them if I could add a windmill. You know, it's just there's just no way. And so I don't know if any of these manufacturers have taken into account things like AM radio. Um, as far as I know, the, the Nissan Leaf and the Chevrolet Bolt with a B um, are available with AM radio. Does it work? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've driven both. I'm, I, I usually take note of vehicles that I can't listen to AM radio with because I'm, I'm a hardcore AM radio listener. All right, yeah, well, then you know, like yeah. with Tesla and stuff, you just can't. So they've managed to get it where if you're listening at night and dialing around, you're, you're not having a lot of electrical interference? Um, I don't know how they do it, and that's a great question. That's something I probably need to figure out because, yeah, I've lamented the fact that all um, BMW hybrids and plug-in hybrids and electric vehicles no AM radio, which is yeah. which is crazy talk. Right. Well, they they won't spend the you know the twenty seven dollars to ground it or whatever it is. They just feel it's uh, unnecessary for their for their demographic. But I'm curious since you're driving, they're going to have to get back to me. I want you to drive around at night and start dialing around the AM band and let me know what happens as you DX, uh, because I'd be very curious to how well they did that. Because uh, frankly, even in some of the good old gas powered vehicles, depending, you don't have a great electrical ground system. AM can go through hell even on those. I remember changing the spark plugs on my 76 Ventura and not getting resistor plugs, uh, and I couldn't hear the AM radio. Yes, yes, you know, yes, it descended you into hell instantly. Well, we're going to talk to Donna in Oakland. There'll be room for everybody. We're talking with Tom Appel. He's the publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive. The website is blog.consumerguide.com. The phone number here is 888-876-5593. 
888-888-RALEIGH on WGN Radio. We are talking cars uh, far from Buick 59, although uh, some cars of days gone by and some cars of coming. Uh, Tom Appel is the publisher, Consumer Guide Automotive, blog.consumerguide.com. And I said I welcome your phone calls, and glory be, we got one. Donna in Oaklawn, welcome to WGN Radio. Hi, Raleigh. Uh, a while ago, I seem to recall reading that Amazon was going to, to try and go with an all-electric fleet. And if that's the case, wouldn't they be uh, not only a forerunner of, of uh, non-polluting, but they'd also kind of spread the gospel so that you'd have more electric stations all over the U.S.? Well, that's interesting. What do you, what do you know, Tom? Yeah, that's a great question. And Amazon has, in fact, got a deal going with the company Rivian. Rivian is the electric startup that bought the plant down in Normal, Illinois, that used to belong to Mitsubishi. And, yeah, I think the order is for something like 100,000 delivery vehicles. Um, to your point, yeah, I think that this can help spread the green gospel or the electric gospel to some extent. It's probably not going to expand charging stations, however, because most of these vehicles start from a home base where they're likely going to charge, will go their route and come back and charge over the night because they don't want a vehicle to stop during the day for charging. Um, what you find is that a lot of these last-mile delivery vehicles don't actually drive that far in a given day, you know, 50, 70, 80 miles, something or that. So they're really well-suited to be electric vehicles. Interesting. Uh, I, just, I just don't want it to come by drone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Donna. Thank you for calling. Thank you, Raleigh. Bye-bye. All right. Yeah, that's uh, the, that whole thing of drone and driverless. I don't know that I'm on board with that. Now, electric cars, a lot of people say, think about the money you'll save. And granted, it's named a Tesla, which means I should get the energy for free. But, of course, I don't. So how much does it cost to recharge these vehicles? Well, that's a great question. Um, in Chicago, where we pay 10 or $0.11 cents per kilowatt hour, um, it costs about five bucks to fully charge a Chevrolet Bolt, for example, overnight. Um, if if you have an access to industrial rates, it's half that. Consumer Guide Automotive, for example, at the office we have a charging station and we pay industrial rates through our landlord, and we only pay five cents per kilowatt hour, so we can charge overnight um, a Chevy Bolt, for example, top to bottom. If I don't know why you would fully drain it, uh, for about two and a half bucks. That's not bad at all, actually. So I assume that's going to be one of the big selling factors as well. Yeah, the cost of ownership comes down. Maintenance is reduced. Um, you almost never have to replace the brakes because regenerative braking, which is part of the electric car dynamic, which actually uh, charges the battery when you brake uh, through the electric motors being turned in reverse, that helps conserve uh brake pads. So maintenance is reduced, uh, fuel costs are reduced, for example. So yeah, the cost of ownership can be far less. So that, and obviously that's going to be a selling factor as well, of course, is that it's so environmentally friendly. Uh, there, there's no te- technology that doesn't have some downside. So what's the downside of electric cars? One of the big arguments I've heard, and I watched several videos on this today, um, actually, just in case we talked about it, the, the process of mining lithium is a little dicey. 
-hmm. and that's what's used in lithium-ion batteries. And it looks like the technology we're going to be using for the foreseeable future is lithium-ion. And that is not an especially ecologically friendly process. The good news is that you only get one battery per car, and in drilling petroleum, of course, you use petroleum all the time. So it, it's an ugly process. It's not especially economic or ecologically friendly because there's a lot of water used in the process. Um, but that, that's a process that can probably be improved over time. I remember when I was in El Paso decades ago, one of the things they said was there was natural lithium in the water, and that's why the folks were calmer. I have no idea if that was true, by the way. But with that in mind, where would a lithium mine be found? Where's the lithium capital of the world? It seems like it's chilly at places in South America. Perfect. Absolutely yeah. perfect. <laughs> right, so we are we are talking with Tom Appel, the publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, and I bet you have some questions. 888-876-5593, 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E. I'm Raleigh James, and it is WGN Radio. We are talking with Tom Appel. He's the publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive. The website is blog.consumerguide.com. Com. And if you go there, uh, you can see all sorts of neat things, including Cowboys in Classic Car Ads, which, of course, uh, I, uh, I loved, Tom. And, uh, you know, I, I lament that I will gladly give up a few miles to the gallon for a fin. And I'm looking at things like, you know, this ordinary 1960 land cruiser, land yacht, otherwise known as that Buick, you know, that you have in there from 1960, that, uh, you know, back then, of course, we didn't, at least I didn't think much of it. Now, my God, it's the most gorgeous thing that would grace the highway. So as we continue to get better at technology and better at all these wonderful, cleaner and better gas mileage and everything else, we have given up styling completely. Isn't there a way to do both? That's a good question. And it, it, I have this conversation a lot with, with uh, my colleague at work, Damon Bell. And we've talked about, about hybrids, not hybrids, I'm sorry, but crossovers in design. And, and one of the sad truths about crossovers is that the hard points where the hood ends, where the roof begins, things like that, is fairly consistent on all the vehicles, making them a little bit more difficult to distinguish them through design. And, and there is some truth, sadly, to they all look the same. Um, a thing that a lot of people, it seems like grouchy old people say that about cars all the time, but it seems more true now than it used to be. And, and yeah, a lot of that design flair of the 50s and 60s has gone away. And, and to some extent, that's a good thing. Cars are safer, more aerodynamic, and easier to build. Uh, but yeah, the innocence is gone. I agree. No, there was nothing like September when all the car dealers would have their, you know, new model displays and they'd have that cocktail party to show them all off. And I remember when 1965 hit and the Chevys went from a box into all those curves and all that kind of stuff. And they had interiors with fake wood that looked like real wood and, you know, thickly padded dashes and all these wonderful, wonderful things that, that Tornado where, uh, the, uh, the indicator was stationary, but the numbers moved and you know you could go on and on they were they were and of course electric windows that meant it you know you hit up and it was up there was there was none about this child safety stuff that will leisurely raise the window it was just instant and boy i miss those days and yes spoken spoken like the uh, old fogey the fossil that i am but but nonetheless when i when i see now even with the gas cars especially with the gas cars maybe you you look and you can't tell the difference between a ford and a mercedes something went very wrong 
Yeah, and it's the realities of, 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 of technology over design, and cars are aerodynamic now, and cars are safer now, and there are things that having to do with how much space you need at the front of the engine to make cars safe in crashes and how much overhang you need in the back, and mm. cars need to be a little bit lower now because of, of air drag. So, yeah, there's just a lot of design parameters and, and, and techn- technological safety and, and economic factors that, that drive design that really weren't considered even 30 years ago. Yeah, but I would still hope that even with all that, that with those limitations, they could still make something that stood out from the crowd that didn't have to be a Lamborghini. Yeah, and I think some manufacturers are getting good at it, too. I don't know if how many people know uh, the Genesis brand, which is Hyundai's new luxury arm, uh, but the new G90 sedan, which is their big sedan, is is absolutely gorgeous, and it makes use of crazy-looking wheels with all sorts of lacy spokes and very dramatic styling, and I think that they managed to do something with an aerodynamic design that hasn't been done in a while, and you can sell that car from any other car at 100 yards. Yeah, and of course it starts at $73,000, you know, for the base model. So it's uh, it's a little pricey. You know, the front of that, uh, this is terrible to say, but the front of that, uh, to some degree, I actually thought of the Edsel, the way that front grille is. <laughs> so I'm sure they wouldn't want to hear that. But if you look at it, you know, it's like, oh, my God, the Edsel's back. So uh, Bill in Chicago wants to weigh in. Welcome to WGN Radio. Yeah, talking about different shapes of cars. Uh, back in the 40s and the early 50s and the 50s, they really had a lot of shape. Remember the Studebaker, we used to call it, that kid, the two-row corn picker? Yes. You couldn't, t- you couldn't tell the front from the back. There was a story once that a, a whole row, a whole bunch of uh, Studebaker assembled in South Bend, Indiana one day. And the guy on the assembly line put the wrong end, put the headlights oh, and the no. taillights, the taillights and the headlights section. <laughs> and because he couldn't tell the front from the back when no. he was doing it. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, that that champion was one of those. Yes, <laughs> right. And and the other one was, um, remember the big old tank, the Packard. Oh, of course. They were, they they were actually building a tank chassis. Most people didn't know that the chassis of a Packard was a tank. They made tank <laughs> chassis to begin with. Well, you know, but, and and then the Ford, the Ford in the fifties, remember like three matchboxes, a big matchbox, and two little ones on each end. Oh yeah, yeah. Fifty Fords, fifty one Fords, right? But it's interesting. That's when cars, you could look at them and just say, oh, that's a Ford, that's a Plymouth, that's a Chevy. That's a, remember the Soto? Of course. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and there's, of course, then you got the Chryslers and, the, like you mentioned, the Edsel. I remember when the Edsel come out, it was everybody thought what a strange-looking car that was. Well, and there were so many jokes <laughs> that I can't tell on the radio about the Ethel, but you can figure it out right. for yourself. But anyway, right, and, yeah. and, and, then, and then there was another one that come out uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, it was the uh, Chevy, oh, what was the one, first rear-engine car. And oh, the Corvair. Had, well, the, Cor- the Corvair, had, of course. Yeah, the Corvair had, yeah. had the engine in the rear. Right. And I knew, I knew a guy that bought that. And the thing of it was, if you went over 50 mile an hour, it hydroplane because the back end was a heavy. He had to, he put, oh, we lived on the farm, and he put 100-pound bags of, grain, of uh, ground feed in the front to hold the front end down so he could drive it. I'm not surprised, although, you know, those kind of design flaws, when I was a Corvette driver, when I had to live in snow country, I would always put, you know, sand in the back, as far as that right, goes, right, right. because same, uh-huh. same deal, you know, get but, some yeah, it would, it would it would hydroplane, it would lift yeah. right off the ground, you yeah. couldn't steer it if you got over 50 mile an hour. So. Yeah, it had some interesting features, that, and some were very well known, that's, uh, that's true. Right, and, it, and then, of course, they come out with the, uh, 
DW, the bug. We used to call it the uh, roller skate on wheels. Yeah. And it used to be at the big roller skater, but you know, yeah, but there was a that, that's when cars were different shapes, and then then they come out with a station wagon with the fake wooden painted oh, painted course. metal. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah, the ta- the town and country model. Yes. <laughs> right, right. The ta- then 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 you had the one with the big fins. Oh, I love the fins. You know, remember, you had the great big high fins. Yes. You know, the, Yes. And then, of course, you had another car come out with a Hudson. A lot of these cars people never heard of. The Hudson, that was a, another local-made car. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. There was a whole lot of cars. Yeah, and H- Hudson's my... wore Detroit cars, though. And, uh, right, right. They, they, they merged with Nash. Isn't that what formed American yeah, right. Motors? Right, right. Yeah, Nash, right. When yeah. Nash, yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah, Nash, Nash was designed originally... For uh, over the world salesman, yeah, the Nash because and the, and the it, it, it had the recline, had yeah. the lay down front seats where you could lay them down, and yeah. that's what that's what the Dash was known for was for. Well, other things too, oh, right. but I can't go into that on the air either. But, but right. it was <laughs> right. They didn't put that in any of the commercials, but it was obviously implied. Yes, <laughs> yes. yeah, right. <laughs> A great, great date car. Right, right. <laughs> There, there you are. So, yeah, they were they were all wonderful as far as that goes. And uh, and today, like you say, they they look like they're just hatched by overachieving chickens. Right, right. And then, then of course, you had the big giant Lincolns and Mercury's. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and, like and the Lincolns with the, the suicide doors in the '60s—they were divine. And what I loved right. about Lincolns in the late '50s was you could change the radio stations with the little pedal on the floor next to the bright lights. Right, right, right. Oh God, we're fossils. That's that's proven, Bill. We're we're over the hill. That's all there well, is to it. Yeah, well, I'll be I'll be eighty one in December. Yeah, see what so, I mean? You know, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes, the, well. the first the first car my brother and I ever had was a a uh, Model T Ford. Oh yeah. Well, no, I'm not surprised because your first car is usually something that isn't new off the showroom floor. So, of course, right, right. We we bought it for five dollars yeah. from a guy who had a store in the barn, and it was worth every penny. We, <laughs> oh yeah, we we worked on it, fixed it up because we repair the engine ourselves. You know, yeah. but yeah, we right. ran that thing for several years. Right. You betcha. Well, thanks for calling, Bill. I appreciate Alrighty. it. All right, okay. so uh, so fun stuff, yeah. And uh, I know they, they run better now, but geez, I'm telling you, give me a fin. Tom Appel, publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, blog.consumerguide.com, 888-876-5593. That's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E on WGN Radio. We've covered uh, we've covered the 50s now as far as cars go. And looking at today, well, that's where you need Tom Appel, the publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive, blog, consumerguide.com. And I, uh, I'm going to, uh, going to take it that all of the gains that we're making are worth giving up the style that uh, some of us lust for. But the one thing I had wondered about that, Tom, is whether or not we've gotten to a point where when we were younger, as I say, we lived for the new car models and, oh, we lusted for them and we dreamed of them. And today... I just wonder if most younger people don't see it as just utilitarian. Argument all the time with people in the industry, and a lot of people don't want to hear it, but I don't think that cars are viewed as fun or, or uh, even um, 
uh, achievable anymore. I think that they are largely considered necessary evils, and I think that a lot of the what you and I have been talking about this this the tail fins and the fun and the excitement and the design people aren't really looking for that anymore. They're thinking about cost of ownership. They're thinking about how much the vehicles are going to cost to insure, where they're going to park them, how much it's going to cost to park them, and is it cheaper to take public transportation? Um, so, yeah, I think that functionality is a thing, and I think that's part of what's driving this move to crossovers and away from sedans is that people view crossovers as more functional and getting a little bit more for their money. You know, it's interesting what you were saying about, say, public transportation. I think that the pandemic might be stopping some of that movement in its tracks because I agree that in major cities where public transit was good and reliable, more and more people was choosing it, were choosing it. I increasingly hear people who say, well, no, I'd rather just drive myself. And I wonder if that's going to reverse some of that. Uh, it already seems to have. I've spoken to a couple of people um, on our podcast, actually, our guests have discussed this. And right now, while car sales are down, sales of small crossovers, subcompact and compact crossovers, are up. And that seems to be the purview of first-time buyers and young buyers that still have to go to work. And, yeah, they seem to have eschewed public transportation largely for safety reasons and are looking at buying their own cars. If you didn't have a lot of money to spend and you wanted a car that was just pure fun at this point, what would you buy? Wow, that's a good question. Something fun and not a lot of money. Um, hmm. I would probably be looking for something that would still have a manual transmission. I recently test drove a Volkswagen Golf, mm-hmm. um, a base model with a manual transmission, and I found that to be a hoot to drive. And, and Volkswagen still sells a lot of vehicles with stick shift, which is nice, and they're still kind of fun to drive with stick. And that vehicle is only about twenty-four grand. Yeah, that is nice. That is nice. Yeah, I, I enjoyed I, it. I, I noticed the Miatas; they become a little pricier, but that's and of course it's got a four-cylinder engine. But other than that, you know, uh, that seems like a cute little car as well. But I don't I don't see many of them. And uh, I I was wondering, as younger people maybe go back to driving cars, will any of them be looking at the fun cars rather than you know just the utilitarian? It's cheap to drive, and hey, it ru- it runs well. I don't know. There's not that many fun fun cars out there left. There are there are things like the Toyota eighty six and the and the Mazda. I'm sorry, the Subaru BRZ. These are fun, relatively affordable cars, and they sell relatively poorly. Actually, there doesn't seem to be a market for small sporty coupes anymore. Isn't that interesting? And I would I would have yeah. just figured that that would have been hot. But I guess I guess we get back to utilitarian, and uh, that that that's in a way a shame because back in the day, your car was in many ways your identity. What you drove was really, uh, you know, a, a kind of an outgrowth of who you were in terms of what you picked. It didn't have to be expensive, but it was uniquely you. And uh, like I say, now you can't tell the $100,000 cars from the $30,000 cars in terms of styling. I'm sure there are other features there. But so uh, with regard to uh, these cars, 2025 or so, uh, what do you see in terms of in the next, say, three years with electric vehicles that we might be able to buy? Yeah, there's a lot going on very soon. We're we're having this conversation right at the precipice of really big stuff happening in terms of electric car availability. Right now, today, electric cars are either very expensive, Teslas are kind of dull looking. 
That's the situation right now. In 12 months, everything's going to be different. We're going to be seeing um, the Ford Mustang Mach-E, which is a crossover that Ford has done a very good job of building demand for, and pre-orders for that seem to be exceeding um, first-year supply, which is incredible. The Porsche Taycan was just launched. This is an all-electric small cross. I'm sorry, small sedan, uh, and they're selling those faster than they can build them, so that's interesting. Uh, and, a, and a crossover version of the Chevrolet Bolt is due soon. Right now, the Chevrolet Bolt is, is this kind of small, kind of hatchbacky thing, not that interesting to look at. But the crossover could probably attract a lot more buyers. So there's a lot coming soon. Plus, GM's, GM's bringing out the Hummer brand, they're reviving the Hummer brand with an electric pickup and oh. eventually an electric crossover. So that'll be fun to watch. <laughs> and the all-electric Cadillac Lyric is coming soon. Okay, the electric Hummer right there, that's an oxymoron to me. How is that? I mean, Hummers are like the most gas-guzzling, two miles to the gallon kind of car, and they're going to be electric? Yeah, the, the brand died. I think a lot of people know that it died in 2010, and it went with it kind of a horrible reputation for, for gas-guzzling. Yeah. The brand is coming back now as a pure electric vehicle built by GM to be retailed through GMC dealers. First will come a pickup truck and then a big crossover, and uh, they're, they're promising big things. We'll see how that goes. Well, they're, they're promising a 1,000 horsepower, now, you know, which, by the way, sounds really nice to me. I, I like horsepower, but uh, how much will this GMC Hummer cost? That's a really good question. I don't think we know yet. I suspect that early versions of it will be relatively pricey. They will become well equipped and, and as you noted, quite powerful. And I suspect, if I was going to guess, they'd start at sixty k. Yeah, just guessing. Yeah, I've seen some of the you know some of the supposedly concepts as far as that goes. And the one thing that did disappoint me is the the picture that they had of the twenty twenty two that we've seen, like on Car and Driver. That looks too normal to me. You know, the one thing about the Hummer was it really did look like the army was at your door. And uh, th this Hummer does not look like, uh, m maybe, you know, maybe the sheriff, but certainly not the army. And so uh, I, I don't know what, what's up with that. That'll be fascinating to, uh, to see how that sells as well. And we didn't even get into this because, of course, there's so many different changes about what's going on inside the cars as well, the smart dashboards and, and all of that that make it uh, attractive. Yeah. some people but i'm i'm gonna lose sleep over the idea of an electric hummer there's there's something that just doesn't add up in that concept so so i know they're just rendering them at this point but uh, uh have they passed the point where we know they're absolutely bringing this out yeah yeah that's definitely going to happen and an electric version of that sold by chevrolet uh should come out at about the same time Oh, man. Well, that's going to be fascinating to, uh, to see and another reason to, to talk. And uh, thanks for joining us on WGN. Oh, the pleasure was mine. Thank you. All right. We'll do it again.